0: Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM
1: 105.5 FM in Tabazimbi.
0: Seeing as it is Youth Month, we committed to discussing youth issues with young people and touching base with how young South Africans are. I don't know, are feeling, how do they feel about the world around them, around um, what things are happening around them, particularly locally, internationally. I mean, there's a lot going on, especially being a young person during the, pandem- the pandemic. So we have today Jessica Brecky, who is Associate Lecturer at the School of Electrical and Information Engineering, University of Wirtz, and uh, an interesting journey she's had. She joins us on the line. She is 27. Jessica, good afternoon. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us i didn't have to make the time it's lockdown what else would i be doing (laughs) well i mean listen from what i've been reading about you there's a lot that you you've got your hands full (laughs) i I don't know that you're just lazing around i think you're quite busy Um, interesting interesting career path you are somebody who's um, studied sociology but decided to go into the world of what we would as lay people call the, the fourth industrial revolution. So you're interested in, in helping engineers and IT people bring the two together, social awareness issues alongside the techie world that they live in? Yes, yes. So so I am a I'm a sociologist and um, have been very
1: interested in recent years on you know this Growing world of technological innovation and how it's going to shape the future that we live in. And I felt that, you know, whether we like it or not, computer scientists and engineers are are going to be shaping that world. Um, and I thought it'd be really fun and really cool to start to engage with engineers on, on the social, the social aspect of their work, you know, and, and how what
0: they do and what they don't do has huge consequence. Um, so, so on the surface, right, someone would say, well, you know, I'm just an engineer, I'm, I'm a coder, I just code stuff, right? Um, and and, and would everybody would think, well, that's just a very scientific way of doing things. You are making the point that actually algorithms and so on are also inspired by how we're socialized, correct? Yes, of course. I mean, there's huge amounts of bias, uh, involved in all of this. What I always tell my students is that
1: everything they everything they do has three C's, right? There's, there's content, there's context, and there's consequence. Mm. And I think if you're not thinking about those things, if you're not thinking about the society that is at work around you while you're creating this algorithm, then your consequence has the potential to be really harmful.
0: You know, what fascinates me about that, though, Jessica, is also... Uh, representation so mm. it's, it's difficult to to create someone to, to, give, to make somebody conscious of something if they're not themselves, they're represented. Yeah. so how do you make a uh, white male represent black female if they're not that? Yeah uh, you, no, know I mean- I, you know what I mean so, so that work that you do is to do exactly that, make them think about what they are not yes right and i think that's what we're seeing happening in the
1: world right now regardless of algorithms and data you know we're seeing with black lives matter just spreading around the world how important it is for white men and white women to have this kind of radical empathy right like you, we can never truly understand but we have the the job to think deeper about it and i think that you know my students they totally have the capacity to be able to think deeper and mm. and I teach them by the time they're in fourth year and I you know I think it's almost a bit late but they they're brilliant, and they're so interesting, and they bring to the conversation a whole lot of things that I've never thought of before. Mm. And, I mean, it's incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly challenging being a woman and being so young to do it, but it is incredibly rewarding.
0: So so what conversations are you having and your colleagues and your students having around, for instance, why Twitter decided to fact-check Donald Trump not so long ago? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I am... Um I've been trying to get my students to think about Anonymous a little bit, you know, the the hacking organization. And I keep being like, you know, people can hack for justice. Look at all these interesting things that you guys can do with your skill sets. And I think quite a lot of them are are quite shocked and don't really know how to respond to the fact that I'm encouraging them to be hackers. I hope my boss doesn't know that I've been doing that either. Too late now. Too late now, (laughs) Jessica. You're on the radio. (laughs) But I, I mean, I think it's it's so important. I mean, the role of technology in this moment is huge. I mean, Black Lives Matter is a hashtag, mm-hmm. right? I and mean, we've just seen the spread spread across across the world. And, and we're seeing, you know, universities now getting involved, especially at Oxford, which mm. is inspired by the Rosemounts um movement at UTT. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, A, as students, they have huge, huge power and they need to be able to use that towards towards fairness and justice, and B, as technologists, they have another set of of huge powers. And I saw yesterday IBM has now... Um declared that they won't be developing facial recognition software anymore wow. which is quite a yeah which is quite a big deal because facial software facial recognition software is hugely racist and is used for for horrible things you know by the state and by corporates worldwide and that, that is something profiling, specifically right? yeah Pro- totally profiling. Mm-hmm. and that is something that my students think about a lot with with critical algorithms and and how it's used racial profiling on facial recognition has been one of our case studies this year so it's been really interesting to see now how that has tied into you know mass movements and demonstrations so i hope that they're seeing that the work they're doing is relevant
0: so it's it's interesting because we also contend with security and personal privacies and mm. all of those liberties mm. and the covid-19 for instance so um the idea that somebody will have to track Your movements everywhere you go so that we make sure that you don't go around, uh, you know, spreading the virus if you were positive could be life-saving, but also quite, you know, I mean, it it infringes on someone's rights. Have you been spying on me?
1: I feel like you... This was actually this is so interesting because this is my the second assignment of the semester for my students was on exactly this. Huh. So so we we took ideas on on surveillance capitalism which yes. was a, a book that came out last year by an American scholar called Shoshana Zuboff uh-huh. and how you know these corporates mine our data and yes. interfere with our privacy and we applied that to what's happening now with COVID-19, right? Yes. Cuz it's a little bit different cuz yes. now it's not corporates taking our data, it's the state yep. and they're doing it for our protection. Mm-hmm. But, and one of my students actually brought this up, which is really interesting, there's not... Any in the regulations, there's no timeline, right? So when mm. will the state stop tracking us? Is it at the last case of COVID? Is it when the we're in level one? Is it when the pandemic is gone? Is it when there's a vaccine? You know, when when does this tracking and tracing stop? And are there any loopholes with how this data can be sold? And and that's what I think we have to be thinking about. Not that it's not useful. Not that it's not saving lives now. But once we're through, hopefully we do get through this pandemic, what will happen with our data afterwards, I think is the question. This
0: is it. And what protection do we have? For instance, maybe not necessarily the state itself, but employees of the state who then decide to take that information and do whatever they want to do with it, even after the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly
1: it's 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 definitely something that we need to be thinking about now right we can't wait for a post covid world to start worrying about what's happening to our data so
0: then how do we educate ourselves around these things so that then we become part of the conversation that informs or at least is part of the government conversations around our discomforts maybe around some of these things Mm. how how do we get to inform because listen i have no idea what you do i wouldn't know where to begin Mm -hmm. in trying to formulate this conversation with somebody who's in power but it's important because it's about us right Mm. so then how do we empower ourselves to be part of the conversation even though we're not the professionals in this arena I mean, I think that that's the question, right? That's a difficult question because I feel like even people
1: that are professionals are not quite sure on how to deal with this, you know, like this this question of surveillance. I mean, the reason that it's kind of been termed surveillance capitalism and not just, you know, digital surveillance is that it's because it's it's totally embedded in our lives right mm. it's so difficult for us to opt in or opt out of of surveillance it's mm. not just the apps that we you know quickly sign the privacy permissions to it's it's so much more than that and so i think it's kind of it's not you know we've been seeing a lot at the moment of how there's no single single issue struggle and i think questions of surveillance and technology fit into that right you can't kind of push against surveillance without pushing against capitalism and and the profits and and selling our data. And so I think it really is kind of... It's reading, right? It's being aware of the products you use and what you're agreeing to and what you're signing off of. But I think it's also understanding how it's connected
0: to so many different things. <laughs> but it's 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 a tough one because. Oh, so tough. Yes, because sometimes you actually buy into it and you are mm. a willing participant. So I'll give you a simple example. So apps, for instance, that say. You know, if you have gained so many steps, you are going to win yourself. You know, points that get you whatever—a mm, coffee mm, and, a, mm. and in fact, we're so encouraged to 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 keep that doing whatever that is to to get those points, right? The the thing is with those steps that you're counting, those steps can also tell where you've been, right? Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, these these things are horrific. Like, yeah.
1: if you really start to to go into them, I mean. This is. I hope I can talk about this on the on the radio. But there was an app last year with a a vibrator, and um, there was a huge civil suit against it because couples were using this vibrator if they were in long distance relationships, and it was connected to an app. (laughs) And the company was mining the data of this app and selling it to (gasps) Facebook. Like there's there's so many things. Like I think it's like once you're aware of. It's frightening. You know, there's um, those home office assistants in people's houses that have yeah. been reported of monitoring people's coughing and sneezing and that affecting their health insurance premiums. And so I think it's when you kind of kick open the door on surveillance in our everyday life, it's completely frightening and overwhelming in the same way that capitalism is, right? When yeah. when something is so embedded, it's so overwhelming. But I do agree. And I, I think that as individuals, we definitely don't pay enough attention to You know, that little accept, Mm -hmm. like terms of conditions thing at the bottom of our apps and at the bottom of the pages we log into on our laptops. You know, what are we agreeing to? What terms and conditions are we accepting? And maybe it does require us to be more vigilant. But they do it on
0: purpose. They make it so long and so complicated on purpose. And so tiny. I mean, my goodness, if I had to read that thing, my eyes would just pop out of my own (laughs) sockets. You know? So I
1: feel like if it's our responsibility to, to read it, it's also their responsibility to make it readable,
0: you know? So let's also talk about what's possible. Let's talk about what's possible because we also need to take some responsibility in how yeah. we become part of the solution in this yeah. algorithm thing. So, yeah. for instance, if I am so offended by when I key in the word poor, for instance, okay? yeah. or, or say the word poor, Beautiful. If I keep yeah. the word beautiful and I search images, and what comes up is always blue and blonde, uh, blue eyes and blonde hair. Yeah. You know, there are ways in which you can be part of that solution. So we need to start inputting more ourselves to be better represented. And that doesn't need to be, you know, you don't need to be an expert in this stuff. You just input stuff, become yes. part of the global village so that you can be well represented. And to hold it accountable. I mean, I know that what I've been seeing on my social media for
1: the last three days is exactly what you've said, but about hairstyles with men. So I don't know if you've seen that, but professional male hairstyle and then unprofessional male (laughs) hairstyle. It's exactly the same. The professional male hairstyle is a white man with some gel and the unprofessional (laughs) hairstyle is a black man with dreadlocks, right? Like Mm. it's exactly... Uh, And then of course, all the black women on my CL have uh, been like, yeah, we've been been saying, like mm. we've been telling you. Mm. So I think these things come up all the time. And Mm. I mean, Google is the is the start of surveillance capitalism right it's it's their search it's it's our them turning our searches into data Mm -hmm. and selling it that really got this whole system moving so google's probably where we should be most skeptical of of what we're seeing
0: but we should also add our voices i mean you can yes yes, we we can also do that we can also add more and correct some of the searches you can add because you've got that thing at the bottom there that says if you want to edit or correct or add and we don't do that
1: yes no exactly And and I think that's so right you know especially with everything with COVID and with Black Lives Matter and with what's happening with the SANDF in South Africa a lot of people are not sure you know how we how should we live you know good political lives but I think it's all about just doing good politics in our corner right and if that means
0: you know if that means challenging your Google search, mm. then I think that that's also, mm. you know, something to do. You're a 27-year-old South African who is living through this pandemic now. What are your lived experiences? What has that been like, being a young person in South Africa? I mean, you speak about some of the challenges as being very young and looking very young mm. and having to stand in front of students who maybe feel like, you know, we don't have to listen to her. Mm. I mean, that's,
1: yeah. And, and, and I'm a woman, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's incredibly difficult, and it's incredibly tricky, and there's lots of things to consider. And, and I'm a and white you, woman. And are you? And, are
0: you speaking? Just, just for clarity, just help me out here. Are you teaching the the final year students? Yes. As in they, so, as in they are older students. Yes. So okay. they're
1: just about to graduate. Yeah. So they're probably in the in their early to. Early to midish twenties. I'm mm. 27.
0: So quite um, confident young people, not not you know just fresh into fresh out of uni- uh, out of high school into university. No, they're confident. Mm. They're hella confident, mm.
1: and they really push me. And and they, it's a lot of awkward dynamics and tensions to deal and deal with in the classroom, you know. Mm. But. And every year has its own issue. Last year, I really battled with race um, mm. and talking about race in the classroom. And this year, the the thing that I battled the most with was gender. Mm. And and But then they really got issues of race and anti-racist work, but they just couldn't get gender. And, and so I think now mm. I'm two years in, and now I'm Going to have to learn to expect that every class will be different and it will have to have their own baggage. So,
0: what, but, what's 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 the difficulty? It, it, let's so if we if we went to the race thing, mm-hmm. it, is the race thing that you can't stand there and tell us about race. We can tell you about race. Is, is that kind of the that narrative? No, not even. And, you know, that's what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I think I was more open to that kind of
1: that challenging dialogue mm. than really just having, you know, white students and white colleagues just push back so much oh, at understanding that race is a structure, right? Ah. And And that it's Not just something that people need to get over. And, you know, I even had a student say oppression is a choice Mm. and all these kind of dynamics. And Mm. and I think that there's this illusion that teachers and academics and lecturers have to be neutral, right? And there's this (laughs) illusion, specifically, I think, with
0: engineers on like this completely neutral, rational lecturer. I laugh because that's my reality. People think that I don't have a right to have an opinion. Yes. You and I both. And that I, when I get up there and I present, let's say, a lecture on racism
1: and technology, that I must give two sides to the story. But I feel like that's completely irresponsible teaching, you know? Like, why would I create a space in my classroom for what I think is racist, harmful um, content? So I, and, and that's been a big pushback for me. So when I did my gender lecture this year and, you know, just trying to get into gender and technology, the students thought I was completely biased because I was giving them feminist readings and feminist like um,
0: theory. And they just thought that I wasn't presenting this balanced, and neutral. This, the thing about it, uh, Jessica, and this is, I'd love your take on this. This is very interesting because it goes back to that argument. In fact, I think I saw this yesterday where a teacher had this, what was, for no marks, uh, fun activity for young people to create an ad of selling slaves as, as oh part of the history lesson, right? And, and one would argue, well, you know, it's, I suppose, trying to give perspective and balance. Well, it's not no it's just completely
1: harmful right yeah. like you're dealing with human beings and and you actually have a responsibility as a teacher to choose what kind of yep. pedagogy you're going to push and and that's that's been my challenge this year which has been made even more tricky by the fact that now we're all online mm. um and and i think being online has come with its own challenges and, and you know you can try to be good and you can try to be radically empathetic but it is incredibly challenging mm-hmm. um I tried to get my students, I thought I was being such a great teacher by getting them to have an online forum, Mm. like a lockdown diary, Mm -hmm. right? So they they would have an online space where they could kind of vent their frustrations. Mm. Um about what it's like to be young and a student and in lockdown. Mm -hmm. And I mean, some of it was incredibly powerful and wonderful and interesting. And then I, of course, had students that were just copy pasting Bob Dylan songs. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. you always have to take everything with a pinch of salt and expect expect the the students that that are buying into it and the students that just have other priorities.
0: I'm, so. I'm keen to know about what you said your difficulties were around. So you thought the race thing was difficult, but the race, the, the, the gender was even harder. What, what mm-hmm. was that dynamic? It was just, um, so this year
1: was tricky. So the students really jumped on or understood quite quickly race as a structure of power, right? And not just kind of this individualistic um, view. And then when we got to, doing gender there was just such a pushback from them on I think inequalities around gender and inequalities around sex and and different identities and it's quite I mean it's it's not only their fault right Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do a whole social theory course with them in six months Mm -hmm. and so whereas like a BA student would be able to kind of go through different, whole different lectures and semesters on these different things. I'm now trying to do gender, sexuality, feminism, mm-hmm. you know, all con- all condensed into one. And so it really... Coupled it really with the fact that the- they bring their own bias to the table. Yes, yes, right? And of course, it's like you're trying to have this really meaningful conversation, but it just keeps getting brought back to the fact that, you know, men are so much better at sports than women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that is, That's just not what we should be talking about right now. Mm-hmm. But it... I think what it did, though, so that was really interesting for me and I guess interesting for me as a young lecturer is because I reacted quite emotionally to that, right? I I didn't keep my cool at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I gave quite a long, long passionate monologue and walked out the class. And I think initially I felt very ashamed of myself and like I hadn't acted professionally Mm -hmm. in that moment. Um, But after speaking to colleagues and my mentors, I kind of realized that emotion has its place in the classroom um, and it, it always should be able to, right? Coming from the teacher all the students, that emotion is part of learning and that, you know, maybe it was a bit of a wake-up call for them. Mm. And it was. I know, I know that it got quite a few students speaking amongst themselves mm. about how I reacted and why I would have reacted that way. Mm. And so I think it was a learning curve for me as a young lecturer and for them, as people that have never had such
0: an emotional mm-hmm. emotional class before. Sure, so you and I can share notes on that one, where you <laughs> released about being emotional, and it is so human, and it, it's okay, and it's, yeah. it's, it should be present, in fact. Talk to me about how, as a young person, you, then you're finding all of this right now, being in lockdown, being a South African, being white, being young, being a lecturer, mm-hmm. um in the midst of all of this, how are you feeling? I mean, I know I'm going to ask you to rush it, but how are you feeling? I mean, a hot mess. <laughs>
1: mm. But
0: I, I so I guess
1: I, I think on a personal level, I'm quite fine. I, I'm able to work, and I'm very grateful for, you know, the small things like Wi-Fi and electricity. I mean, these are things that my students, not all of them, have. Mm. Um, everyone always talks about data, but many of my students don't even have electricity. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very aware of the comfort in which I'm living. But I think... You know, the pandemic has has really highlighted the the inequalities in this country. And I think a lot of us are having to figure out what we're going to do moving forward
0: to to kind of make our lives good and political in every corner that we are, occupy. What an interesting chat. Thank you so much. Jessica Brecky is an associate lecturer at the School of Electrical and Information Engineering at Vitz University. She's 27. And that's uh, our feature where we are going to be talking to a young person every single day and getting their perspective on the world they live in right now.